Disc 4 Chapter 18 Jo has an adventure on her own Jo came to the end of the spiral stairway at last. She found herself on the level once more and remembered the little straight passage that led to the secret room from the stairway. Good, good, good. Now she would soon be in the room and could lie down on the bench. She went through the doorway of the secret room without knowing it because it was so dark. She groped her way along and suddenly felt the edge of the bench. Here at last, she said thankfully out loud. And then poor Jo got a dreadful shock. A pair of strong arms went round her and held her fast. She screamed and struggled, her heart beating in wild alarm. Who was it? Oh, if only she had a light! And then a torch was switched on and held to her face. Oh, ho! You must be Joe, I suppose, said Pottersham's voice. I wondered who you were when one of those kids yelled out for you. I thought you must be wandering somewhere about. I guessed you'd come this way, and I sat on the bench and waited for you. Let me go, said Joe fiercely, and struggled like a wild cat. The man only held her all the more tightly. He was very strong. Joe suddenly put down her face and bit his hand. He gave a shout and loosened his hold. Joe was almost free when he caught her again and shook her like a rat. You little wild cat! Don't you do that again. Joe did it again, even more fiercely, and the man dropped her onto the ground, nursing his hand. Joe made for the entrance of the room, but again the man was too quick, and she found herself held again. I'll tie you up, said the man furiously. I'll rope you so that you won't be able to move, and I'll leave you here in the dark till I come back again. He took a rope from round his waist and proceeded to tie Joe up so thoroughly that she could hardly move. Her hands were behind her back. Her legs were tied at the knees and ankles. She rolled about the floor, calling the man all the names she knew. Well, you're safe for the time being, said Pottersham, sucking his bitten hand. Now I'm going. I wish you joy of the hard, cold floor and the darkness, you savage little wildcat. Joe heard his footsteps going in the distance. She could have kicked herself for not having guessed he might have been lying in wait for her. Now she couldn't get help for the others. In fact, she was much worse off than they were because she was tied up and they weren't. Poor Joe. She dozed off, exhausted by the night's excitement and her fierce struggle. She lay against the wall, so uncomfortable that she kept waking from her doze every few minutes. And then a thought came into her head. She remembered the rope man, all tied up in length after length of knotted rope. She had watched him set himself free so many times. Could any of his tricks help her now? The rope man would be able to get himself free of this rope in two minutes, she thought and began to wriggle and struggle again. But she was not the rope man, and after about an hour she was so exhausted again that she went into a doze once more. When she awoke, she felt better. She forced herself into a sitting position and made herself think clearly and slowly. 
Work one knot free first, she said to herself, remembering what the rope man had told her. At first, you won't know which knot is best. When you know that, you will always be able to free yourself in two minutes. But find that one knot first. She said all this to herself as she tried to find a knot that might be worked loose. At last, one seemed a little looser than the others. It was one that bound her left wrist to her right. She twisted her wrist round and got her thumb to the knot. She picked and pulled, and at last it loosened a little. She had more control over that hand now. If only she had a knife somewhere. She could manage to get it between her finger and thumb now, and perhaps use it to cut another knot. She suddenly lost her patience and flung her head back on the bench, straining and pulling at the rope. She knocked against something, and it fell to the stone floor with a clatter. Joe wondered what it was. And then she knew. That dagger! The old rusty dagger! Oh, if I could find it, I might do something with it! She swung herself round on the floor till she felt the dagger under her. She rolled over on her back and tried to pick it up with her free finger and thumb. And at last she managed to hold it. She sat up, bent forward, and did her best to force the rusty dagger up and down a little on the rope that tied her hands behind her. She could hardly move it at all because her hands were still so tightly tied, but she persevered. She grew so tired that she had to give it up for a long while. Then she tried again, then had another long rest. The third time she was lucky. The rope suddenly frayed and broke. She pulled her hands hard, found them looser, and picked at a knot. It took Jo a long time to free her hands, but she did it at last. She couldn't manage to undo her legs at first because her hands were trembling so much. But after another long rest, she undid the tight knots and shook her legs free. Well, thank goodness I learnt a few hints from the rope man, she said out loud. I'd never have got free if I hadn't. She wondered what the time was. It was pitch dark in the little room, of course. She stood up and was surprised to find that her legs were shaky. She staggered a few steps and then sat down again. But her legs soon felt better, and she stood up once more. Now to find my way out, she said. How I wish I had a torch! She went carefully down the flight of stone steps that led down from the room, and then came to the wide passage that ran under the courtyard. She went along it, glad it was level, and then came once again to stone steps that led upwards. Up she climbed, knowing that she was going the right way, although she was in the dark. Now she came to the small passage, where she had to bend almost double, the one that ran through the centre of the thick outer walls. Jo heaved a sigh of relief. Surely she would soon come to where the stone had fallen out and would be able to see daylight. She saw daylight before she came to the place where the stone was missing. She saw it some way in front of her, a misty little patch that made her wonder what it was at first. Then she knew. Daylight! Oh, thank goodness! She stumbled along to it and climbed up to the hole from which the stone had fallen. She sat there, drinking in the sunlight. 
It was bright and warm and very comforting. After the darkness of the passages, Jo felt quite dazed. Then she suddenly realised how very high the sun was in the sky. Goodness, it must be afternoon. She looked cautiously out of the hole in the wall. Now that she was so near freedom, she didn't want to be caught by anyone watching out for her. There was nobody. Jo leapt down from the hole and ran to the steep hillside. She went as sure-footed as a goat, leaping along till she came to the lane. She crossed it and made her way to the caravan field. She was just about to go over the stile when she stopped. Julian had said she was to go to the police. But Joe, like the other traveller folk, was afraid of the police. No traveller ever asked the police for help. Joe felt herself shriveling up inside when she thought of talking to big policemen. No, I'll go to Uncle Fredo, she thought. He will know what to do. I will tell him about it. She was going up the field when she saw someone strange there. Who was it? Could it be that horrid man who had tied her up? She had not seen him at all clearly, and she was afraid it might be. She saw that he was talking urgently to some of the fair folk. They were listening politely, but Joe could see that they thought he was rather mad. She went a bit nearer and found that he was asking where Julian and the rest were. He was becoming very angry with the fair people, because they assured him that they did not know where the children had gone. It's the man they called Pottersham, said Joe to herself, and dived under a caravan. He's come to find out how much we've told anyone about that face. She hid till he had gone away down the hillside to the lane, very red in the face, and shouting out that he would get the police. Joe crawled out, and the fair folk crowded round her at once. Where have you been? Where are the others? That man wanted to know all about you. He sounds quite mad. He's a bad man, said Joe. I'll tell you all about him and where the others are. We've got to rescue them. Whereupon, Joe launched into her story with the greatest zest, beginning in the middle, then going back to the beginning, putting in things she had forgotten and thoroughly muddling everyone. When she ended, they all stared at her in excitement. They didn't really know what it was all about, but they had certainly gathered a few things. You mean to say that those kids are locked up in that tower over there? said Alfredo, amazed. And a spy is with them? No, he's not a spy. He's a good man, explained Joe. What they call a scientist. Very, very clever. That man who left just now, he said he was a, uh, a, a scientist, said Skippy, stumbling over the unfamiliar word. Well... He's a bad man, said Joe firmly. He is probably a spy. He kidnapped the good man up in the tower there to take him away to another country. And he tied me up too, like I told you. See my wrists and ankles? She displayed them, cut and bruised. The fair folk looked at them in silence. Then Buffalo cracked his whip and made everyone jump. We will rescue them, he said. This is no police job. It is our job. I say, look, that 
dentist has come back, said Skippy suddenly. And sure enough, there he was, coming hurriedly up the field to ask some more questions. We will get him, muttered Buffalo. All the fair folk waited in silence for the man to come up. Then they closed round him solidly and began to walk up the hill. The man was taken with them. He couldn't help himself. He was walked behind a caravan, and before the crowd had come apart again, he was on the ground, neatly roped by the rope man. Well, we've got you, said the rope man, and now we'll get on to the next bit of business. Chapter 19. Joe Joins In The scientist, as Skippy persisted in calling him, was put into an empty caravan with windows and doors shut because he shouted so loudly. When the snake man opened the door and slid in one of his pythons, the scientist stopped shouting at once and lay extremely still. The snake man opened the door and his python glided out again. But the man in the caravan had learnt his lesson. Not another sound came from him. Then everyone in the camp held a conference. There was no hurry about it at all, because it had been decided that nothing should be done before night-time. If we make a rescue in the daylight, then the police will come, said Alfredo. They will interfere. They will not believe a word we say. They never do. How shall we rescue them? said Skippy. Do we go through these strange passages and up steep stone stairs? It does not sound nice to me. It isn't at all nice, Joe assured her. And anyway, it wouldn't be sensible. The door leading to the tower room is locked, I told you. And that man has got the key. Ah! said Buffalo, springing up at once. You didn't tell us that before. He has the key. Then I will get it from him. I didn't think of that, said Joe, watching Buffalo leap up the caravan steps. He came out in a minute or two and joined them again. He has no key on him, he said. He says he never had. He says we're all mad and he'll get the police. He will find it hard to get the police just yet said Mrs. Alfredo, and gave a high little laugh. He has thrown away the key or given it to a friend, perhaps. Well, it's settled we can't get in through the door that leads to the tower room, then, said the snake man, who seemed to have a better grasp of things than the others. Right. Is there any other way into the room? Only by the window, said Joe. That slit window there, see? Too high for any ladder, of course. Anyway, we've got to get into the courtyard first. We'll have to climb over the high castle wall. That is easy, said the rubber man. I can climb any wall, but not perhaps one so high as the tower wall. Can anyone get into or out of the slit of a window? asked Buffalo, screwing up his eyes to look at the tower. Oh, yes, it's bigger than you think, said Joe. It's very deep. The walls are so thick, you see. Though I don't think they are so thick up there as they are down below. But Buffalo, how can anyone get up to that window? It can be done, 
said Buffalo. That's not so difficult. You can lend us a peg rope, Jackie, he said to the rope man. Yes, said Jackie. Joe knew what that was, a thick rope with pegs thrust through the strands to act as footholds. But how will you get the peg rope up? said Joe, puzzled. It can be done, said Buffalo again, and the talking went on. Joe suddenly began to feel terribly hungry and got up to get herself a meal. When she got back to the conference, everything was apparently settled. We set off tonight as soon as darkness comes, Buffalo told her. You will not come, Joe. This is man's business. Of course I'm coming, said Joe, amazed that anyone should think she wasn't. They're my friends, aren't they? I'm coming, all right. You are not, said Buffalo. And Joe immediately made up her mind to disappear before the men set off and hide somewhere so that she might follow them. By this time, it was about six o'clock. Buffalo and the rope man disappeared into Jackie's caravan and became very busy there. Joe went peeping in at the door to see what they were doing, but they ordered her out. This is not your business anymore, they said, and turned her out when she refused to go. When darkness came, a little company set out from the camp. They had searched for Joe to make sure she was not coming, but she had disappeared. Buffalo led the way down the hill, looking extremely fat because he was wound about with a great deal of peg rope. Then came Mr. Slither with one of his pythons draped round him. Then the rubber man with Mr. Alfredo. Buffalo also carried his whip, though nobody quite knew why. Anyway, Buffalo always did carry a whip. It was part of him, so nobody questioned him about it. Behind them, like a little shadow, slipped Joe. What were they going to do? She had watched the tower window for the last two hours, and when darkness came, she saw a light there, a light that shone on and off, on and off. That's Dick or Julian signalling, she thought. They will have wondered why I haven't brought help sometime today. They don't know that I was captured and tied up. I'll have something to tell them when we're all together again. The little company went over the stile, into the lane and up the path to the castle. They came to the wall. The rubber man took a jump at it and literally seemed to run up it, fling himself onto the top, roll over and disappear. He's over, said Buffalo. What it is to be made of rubber? I don't believe that fellow ever feels hurt. There was a low whistle from the other side of the wall. Buffalo unwound a thin rope from his waist, tied a stone to it and flung it over. The rope slithered after the stone and over the wall like a long, thin worm. Thud! They heard the stone fall on the ground on the other side. Another low whistle told them that the rubber man had it. Buffalo then undid the peg rope from his waist, and he and the others held out its length between them, standing one behind the other. One end was fastened to the thin rope, whose other end held the stone. The rubber man on the other side of the wall began to pull on the thin rope. 
when all the slack was taken in, the peg rope began to go up the wall too, because it was tied to the thin rope and had to follow it. Up went the peg rope, and up, looking like a great thick caterpillar with tufts sticking out of its sides. Joe watched. Yes, that was clever. A good and easy way of getting over the thick high wall. But to get the peg rope up to the slit window would not be so easy. A whistle came again. Buffalo let go the peg rope, and it swung flat against his side of the wall. He tugged it. It was firm. Evidently, the rubber man had tied it fast to something. It was safe to go up. It would bear anyone's weight without slipping down the wall. Buffalo went up first, using the pegs as footholds and pulling himself up by the rope between the pegs. Each of the men was quick and deft in the way he climbed. Joe waited till the last one had started up and then leapt for the rope too. Up she went like a cat and landed beside Buffalo on the other side of the wall. He was astounded and gave her a cuff. She dodged away and stood aside watching. She wondered how the men intended to reach the topmost window of the high tower. Perhaps she would be of some help, if only she could be. The four men stood in the moonlight, looking up at the tower. They talked in low tones, while the rubber man undid the thin rope from the peg rope and neatly coiled it into loops. The peg rope was left on the wall. Joe heard a car going up the lane at the bottom of the castle hill. She heard it stop and back somewhere. Part of her attention was on the four men, and the other part was on the car. The car stopped its engine. There was no further sound. Joe forgot it for a few minutes, and then was on the alert again. Was that voices she heard somewhere? She listened intently. The sound came again on the night air, a low murmur that came nearer. Joe held her breath. Could that horrid man... What was his name? Pottersham? Could he have arranged for his equally horrid friends to fetch Mr Terry Kane and all the children out of the tower that night and take them off to the coast? Perhaps they had already hired a fishing boat from Joseph, the old fisherman, and they would all be away and never heard of again. So the thoughts ran in Joe's alert mind. Mr Pottersham would have had plenty of time to get fresh orders and arrange everything before he had gone to the camp and got himself locked up in a caravan. Oh dear! Dare she go and warn her Uncle Alfredo, where he stood in the moonlight, holding a little conference with the others? He'll cuff me as soon as I go near, thought Joe, rubbing her left ear, which still stung from Buffalo's cuff. They won't listen to me, I know. Still, I'll try. She went up to the group of men cautiously. She saw Buffalo take out a dagger knife from his belt and tie it to the end of the thin rope that the rubber man held. She guessed in a moment what he was about to do and ran to him. No, Buffalo, no! Don't throw that knife up. You'll hurt someone. You might wound one of them. No, Buffalo, no! Clear out, said Buffalo angrily and raised his hand to slap her.
she dodged away. She went round the group to her uncle. Uncle Fredo, she said beseechingly, listen, I can hear voices. I think those... Alfredo pushed her away roughly. Will you stop this, Joe? Do you want a good whipping? You behave like a buzzing fly. Mr. Slither called to her. See here, Joe. If you want to be useful, hold beauty for me. He will be in the way in a minute. He draped the great snake over her shoulders, and beauty hissed loudly. He began to coil himself round Joe, and she caught hold of his tail. She liked beauty, but just at that moment she didn't want him at all. She stood back and watched what Buffalo was going to do. She knew, of course, and her heart beat fearfully. He was going to throw his knife through that high slit window, a thing that surely only Buffalo, with his unerring aim, could possibly do. But if he gets it through the window, it may stick into one of the four up there, or into Mr. Terry Kane, she thought in a panic. It might wound Dick or Timmy. Oh, I wish Buffalo wouldn't do it. She heard low voices again. This time, they came from just the other side of the wall. Men were going to follow those secret passages and go right up to the tower room. Joe knew they were. They would be there before Buffalo and the others had followed out their rescue plan. She pictured the four children being dragged down the stairs, and Terry Kane, too. Would Timmy defend them? He would, but the men would certainly deal with him. They knew there was a dog there because Timmy had barked the night before. Oh, dear, thought Joe in despair. I must do something. But what can I do? Chapter 20. A Lot of Excitement Jo suddenly made up her mind. She would follow the men through those passages and see if she could warn the others by shouting when she came near enough to the tower room. She would help them somehow. Buffalo and the others would be too late to save them now. Jo ran to the wall. She was up the peg rope left there and down the other side in a trice. She made her way to where the missing stone left the gap in the old wall. Beauty, the python, was surprised to find himself pulled off and thrown on the ground just before Joe ran for the wall. He wasn't used to that sort of treatment. He lay there, coiling and uncoiling himself. Where had that nice girl gone? Beauty liked Joe. She knew how to treat him. He glided after her. He, too, went up the wall and over, quite easily, though he did not need to use the peg rope like Joe. He glided after Joe quickly. It was amazing to see his speed when he really wanted to be quick. He came to the hole in the wall. Ah, he liked holes. He glided in after Joe. He caught up with her just as she had reached the end of the small passage through which she had had to walk bent double. He pushed against her legs and then twined himself round her. She gave a small scream and then realised what it was. Beauty! 
You'll get into trouble with Mr. Slither coming after me like this. Go back. Stop twining yourself round me. I've got important things to do. But Beauty was not like Timmy. He obeyed only when he thought he would, and he was not going to obey this time. All right, come with me if you want to, said Joe at last, having in vain tried to push the great snake back. You'll be company, I suppose. Stop hissing like that, Beauty. You sound like an engine letting off steam in this narrow passage. Soon Joe had gone down the steep steps that led to the level passage under the courtyard. Beauty slithered down them too, rather surprised at the sudden drop. Along the wider passage they went, Beauty now in front, and Joe sometimes tripping over his powerful tail. Up steps again, and into the thick wall of the castle itself. Something shining ahead made Joe suddenly stop. She listened, but heard nothing. She went forward cautiously, and found that in the little secret room was a small lantern, left there probably by one of the men in front. She saw the rusty dagger lying on the floor where she had left it the night before, and grinned. The rope was there too, that she had untied from her arms and legs. Joe went on, along the passage that led to the spiral stairway. Now she thought she could hear something. She climbed the steep stairs, cross with beauty, because he pushed by her and almost sent her headlong down them. She came to the door that opened onto the little gallery. Dare she open it? Suppose the men were just outside. She opened it slowly. It was pitch dark on the other side, of course, but Joe knew she was about to step out on the little gallery. Beauty suddenly slithered up her and coiled himself lovingly round her. Joe could not make the snake uncoil, and she stepped out on the small gallery with Beauty firmly wrapped about her. And then, what a noise she heard! She stood quite aghast. Whatever could be going on? She heard excited voices. Surely one was Buffalo's. And was that crack a pistol shot? What had happened down below in the courtyard when Joe had disappeared over the wall with Beauty? None of the men noticed her go. They were all too intent on their plan. Buffalo was to use his gift for knife-throwing, but in quite a different way from usual. He was to throw the knife high into the air and make it curve in through the slit window at the top of the tower. Buffalo was an expert at knife-throwing, or, indeed, at any kind of throwing. He stood there, in the courtyard, looking up at the high window. He half-closed his eyes, getting the distance and the direction fixed in his mind. The moon suddenly went in, and he lowered his hand. He could not throw accurately in the dark. The moon sailed out again, quite brilliant. Buffalo lost no time. Once more, he took aim, his eyes narrowed, and then the knife flew high into the air, gleaming as it went, taking behind it a long tail of very thin rope. It struck the sill of the slit window and fell back. Buffalo caught it deftly. 
The moonlight showed plainly that the knife was not sharp-pointed. Buffalo had filed off the point, and it was now quite blunt. Joe need not have worried about someone in the tower being hurt by a sharp dagger. Once more, Buffalo took aim. And once more, the knife sailed up, swift as a swallow, shining silver as it went. This time, it fell cleanly in at the window opening, slithered all the way across the stone ledge inside, and fell to the floor of the tower room with a thud. It caused the greatest astonishment there. Mr Terry Kane, the four children and Timmy, were all huddled together for warmth in one corner. They were hungry and cold. No one had brought them food, and they had nothing to keep them warm except a rug belonging to Terry Kane. All that day they had been in the tower room, sometimes looking from the window, sometimes shouting all together at the tops of their voices. But nobody heard them, and nobody saw them. Why doesn't Joe bring help? They had said a hundred times that long, long day. They didn't know that poor Joe was spending hours trying to free herself from the knots round her legs and wrists. They had looked out of the window at the camp on the opposite hill, where the fair folk went about their business, looking like ants on the far-off green slope. Was Joe there? It was too far off to make out anyone for certain. When darkness came, Julian had flashed his torch from the window on and off, on and off. Then, cold and miserable, they had all huddled together, with Timmy licking first one and then another, not at all understanding why they should stay in this one room. Timmy will be so thirsty, said George. He keeps licking round his mouth in the way he does when he wants a drink. Well, I feel like licking round my mouth too, said Dick. They were half asleep when the knife came thudding into the room. Timmy leapt up at once and barked madly. He stood and stared at the knife that lay gleaming in the moonlight and barked without stopping. A knife, said George in amazement. A knife with a string tied on the end. It's blunt, said Julian, picking it up. The tip has been filed off. What's the meaning of it? And why the string tied to it? Be careful that another knife doesn't come through, warned Terry Kane. It won't, said Julian. I think this is something to do with Joe. She hasn't gone to the police. She has got the fair folk to help us. This is Buffalo's knife, I'm sure. They were all round him, examining it now. I'm going to the window, said Julian. I'll look right out into the courtyard. Hold my legs, Dick. He climbed up on the stone sill and crawled a little forward through the deep-set slit. He came to the outer edge of the window and looked down. Dick hung on to his legs, afraid that the sill might crumble away and Julian would fall. I can see four people down in the courtyard, said Julian. Oh, good. One is Alfredo, one is Buffalo, and I can't make out the other two. Ahoy down there! The four men below were standing looking up intently. They saw Julian's head appear outside the window and waved to him. Pull in the rope, shouted Buffalo. 
He had now tied the end of a second peg rope to the thin rope, and he and the others lifted it so that it might run easily up the wall. Julian slid back into the tower room. He was excited. This string on the knife runs down the wall and is tied to a thicker rope, he said. I'll pull it up, and up will come a rope that we can climb down. He pulled on the string, and more and more of it appeared through the window. Then Julian felt a heavier weight, and guessed the thicker rope was coming up. Now he had to pull more slowly. Dick helped him. Over the window sill, in at the window, appeared the first length of the peg rope. The children had never seen one like it before. They were used to the more ordinary rope ladder. But Terry Kane knew what it was. A peg rope, he said. Circus people and fair people make them. They are lighter and easier to manage than rope ladders. We'll have to fix the end to something really strong so that it will hold our weight. Anne looked at the peg rope in dismay. She didn't at all like the idea of climbing down that, swinging on it all the way down the high stone wall of the tower. But the others looked at it with pleasure and excitement. A way of escape. A good, strong rope to climb down out of this hateful, cold room. Terry Kane looked about for something to fasten the rope to. In the wall at one side was a great iron ring embedded in the stone. What it had been used for once upon a time, nobody could imagine, but certainly it would be of great use now. There were no pegs in the first yard or so of the rope. Terry Kane and Julian cut off the string that had pulled it up and then dragged it right through until the first peg stopped it. Then they twisted the rope end round upon itself and made great strong knots that could not slip. Julian took hold of the rope and leaned back hard on it, pulling it with all his strength. It would hold a dozen of us at once, he said, pleased. Shall I go first, sir? I can help everyone else down then, if I'm at the bottom. Dick and you can see to the girls when they climb out. What about Timmy? asked George at once. We'll wrap him up in the rug, tie him firmly and lower him down on the string, said Dick. It's very strong string. Thin rope, really. I'll go down now, said Julian and went to the window. Then he stopped. Someone was clattering up the stone steps that led to the tower. Someone was at the door. Who could it be? Chapter 21 In the Tower Room The door was flung open and a man stood there panting. Behind him came three others. Pottersham, said Terry Kane. So, you're back. Yes, I'm back, said the panting man. Timmy began to bark and tried to escape from George's hand. He showed his teeth and all his hackles rose up on his neck. He looked a very savage dog indeed. Pottersham backed away. He didn't like the look of Timmy at all. If you let that dog go, I'll shoot him, he said. And as if by magic, a gun appeared in his right hand. 
George tried her hardest to restrain the furious Timmy and called to Julian to help her. Julian, hold him as well. He'll fling himself on that man. He's so angry. Julian went to help. Between them, they forced the furious dog back into a corner where George tried in vain to pacify him. She was terrified that he might be shot. You can't behave like this, Pottersham, began Terry Kane, but he was cut short. We've no time to lose. We're taking you, Terry Kane, and one of the kids. We can use him for a hostage if too much fuss is made about your disappearance. We'll take this boy, and he grabbed at Dick. Dick gave him a punch on the jaw immediately, thanking his stars that he had learnt boxing at school. But he at once found himself on the floor. These men were not standing for any nonsense. They were in a hurry. Get him, said Pottersham to one of the men behind him, and Dick was pounced on. Then Terry Kane was taken too, and his arms held behind him. What about these other kids? he said angrily. You're surely not going to lock them up in this room and leave them. Yes, we are, said Pottersham. We're leaving a note for the old turnstile woman to tell her they're up here. Let the police rescue them, if they can. You always were a... began Terry Kane, and then ducked to avoid a blow. Timmy barked madly all the time, and almost choked himself trying to get away from George and Julian. He was mad with rage, and when he saw Dick being roughly treated, he very nearly did manage to get loose. Take them, ordered Pottersham, and hurry. Go on, down the steps with them. The three men forced Terry Kane and Dick to the stone stairs, and then everyone shot round in astonishment. A loud voice suddenly came from the window. Anne gasped. Buffalo was there. He hadn't been able to understand why nobody came down the peg rope, so he had come up to find out. And to his enormous surprise, there appeared to be quite an upset going on. Hey there! What's up? he yelled, and slid into the room, looking most out of place with his mop of yellow hair, bright checked shirt, and whip. Buffalo! shouted all four of the children, and Timmy changed his angry bark to a welcoming one. Terry Kane looked on in astonishment, his arms still pinioned behind him. Who in the world is this? shouted Pottersham, alarmed at Buffalo's sudden appearance through the window. How did he get through there? Buffalo eyed the gun in Pottersham's hand, and lazily cracked his small whip once or twice. Put that thing away, he said in his drawling voice. You ought to know better than to wave a thing like that about when there's kids around. Go on, put it away. He cracked his whip again. Pottersham pointed the gun at him angrily. And then a most amazing thing happened. The gun disappeared from Pottersham's hand, flew right up into the air, and was neatly caught by Buffalo, and all by the crack of a whip. Crack! Just that, and the gun had been flicked from his hand by the powerful lash end, and had stung Pottersham's fingers so much 
He was now howling in pain and bending double to nurse his injured hand. Terry Kane gasped. What a neat trick! But how dangerous! The gun might have gone off. Now the tables were indeed turned, for it was Buffalo who held the gun, not Pottersham, and Pottersham looked very pale indeed. He stared as if he hardly knew what to do. Let go of them, ordered Buffalo, nodding his head towards Terry Kane and Dick. The three men released them and stood back. Seems as if we got to get the police after all, remarked Buffalo, in a perfectly ordinary voice, as if these happenings were not at all unusual. You can let that dog go now if you want, Julian. No, no, cried Pottersham in terror. And at that moment, the moon went behind a cloud, and the tower room was plunged in darkness, except for the lantern that Pottersham had set down on the floor when he had first arrived. He saw one slight chance for himself and the others. He suddenly kicked the lantern, which flew into the air and hit Buffalo, then went out and left the entire place in pitch darkness. Buffalo did not dare to fire. He might hit the wrong person. Set the dog loose, he roared, but it was too late. By the time Timmy had got to the door, it was slammed shut and the bolt was shot home on the other side. There was the sound of hurried steps slipping and stumbling down the stone stairway in the dark. Hrrr, said Buffalo, when the moon came out again, and showed him the astonished and dismayed faces of the five in the room. We slipped up somewhere, didn't we? They've gone. Yes, but without us said Terry Kane, letting Dick untie his arms. They've probably gone down through those passages. They'll be out before we've escaped ourselves, more's the pity. And now we've got to try this rope trick down the tower wall, seeing that the door is locked. Come on, then, said Julian. Let's go before anything else happens. He went to the window, slid to the outer edge, and took hold of the rope. It was perfectly easy to climb down, though it wasn't very pleasant to look below him into the courtyard. It seemed so very far away. Anne went next, very much afraid, but not showing it. She was quite a good climber, so she didn't find the rope difficult. She was very, very glad when she at last stood safely beside Julian. Then came George with a bit of news. I can't think what's happening to the four men, she said. They still seem to be about, and they're yelling like anything. It sounds as if they are rushing round that gallery that runs along the walls of the tower room below. Well, let them, said Julian. If they stay there long enough, we'll have time to go to the hole in the outer wall and wait for them to come out one by one. That would be very, very nice. Timmy's coming now, said George. I've wrapped him up well in that rug and tied it all round him and put a kind of rope harness on him. Dick's going to lower him down. We doubled the rope to make sure it would hold. <laughs> Look, here he comes. Poor darling Timmy. He can't think what in the world is happening. Timmy came down slowly, swinging a little 
and bumping into the stone wall now and again. He gave a little yelp each time, and George was sure he would be covered with bruises. She watched in great suspense as he came lower and lower. Timmy ought to be used to this sort of thing by now, said Julian. He's had plenty of it in the adventures he shared with us. <laughs> hey there, Tim. Slowly does it. Good dog, then. I guess you're glad to be standing on firm ground again. Timmy certainly was. He allowed himself to be untied from his rug by George and then tried a few steps to see if the ground was really firm beneath his feet. He leapt up at George joyfully, very glad to be out in the open air again. Here comes Dick, said Julian. The peg rope swayed a little and Alfredo went to hold it steady. He and the rubber man and Mr Slither were now extremely concerned about something, so concerned that they had hardly a word to say to Julian and George and Anne. They had suddenly missed Joe and the snake. The snake man didn't care tuppence about Joe, but he did care about his precious, beloved, magnificent python. He had already hunted all round the courtyard for it. If Joe's taken it back to camp with her, I'll pull her hair off, muttered the snake man unhappily. And Julian looked at him in astonishment. What was he muttering about? Terry Kane came next, and last of all, Buffalo, who seemed to slide down in a most remarkable way, not using the pegs at all. He leapt down beside them, grinning. <laughs> There's a tremendous upset up aloft, he said, yelling and shouting and scampering about. What do you suppose is the matter with those fellows? We'll be able to get them nicely if we go to the hole in the wall. They'll be out there soon, I reckon. Come on. Chapter 22 Beauty and Joe Enjoy Themselves Something certainly had happened to upset Pottersham and his three friends. After the door of the tower room had been slammed and bolted, the men had gone clattering down the stone steps. They had come to the door that led into the gallery and had opened it and gone out onto the gallery itself. But before they could find the spiral staircase a little way along, Pottersham had tripped over something, something that hissed like an engine letting off steam and had wound itself round his legs. He yelled and struck out at whatever it was. At first, he had thought it was a man lying in wait for him who had pounced at his legs, but he knew it wasn't a man now. No man could hiss like that. One of the men shone a torch down to see what was the matter with Pottersham. What he saw made him yell and almost drop the torch. A snake! A snake bigger than any I've ever seen! It's got you, Pottersham! Help me, man! Help me! shouted Pottersham, hitting down at the snake as hard as he could. It's squeezing my legs together in its coils! The other men ran to help him. As soon as they began to tug... Beauty uncoiled and glided off into the shadows. Where's the horrible thing gone? panted Pottersham. It nearly crushed my legs to powder.
Quick, let's go before it comes back. Where in the world did it come from? They took a few steps, but the snake was lying in wait for them. It tripped them all up by gliding in and out of their legs and then began to coil itself round one of the men's waists. Such a shouting and yelling and howling began then. If ever there were frightened men, those four were. No matter where they went, that snake seemed to be there, coiling and uncoiling, gliding, writhing, squeezing. It was Joe who had set the python onto them, of course. Joe had stayed in the gallery while all the disturbance upstairs had been going on, beauty draped round her neck. The girl tried in vain to make out what was happening. And then she had heard a door slam, a bolt shot home, and men's feet pouring down the stone stairs. She guessed it must be the four whose voices she had heard earlier in the evening, the men who had gone through the passage. Beauty? Now it's your turn to do something, said Joe, and she pulled the snake off her shoulders. He poured himself down her and flowed onto the ground in one beautiful movement. He glided towards the men who were now coming out of the gallery. After that, the python had the time of his life. The more the men howled, the more excited the big snake became. Joe was huddled in a corner, laughing till the tears ran down her cheeks. She knew the snake was quite harmless, unless he gave one of the men too tight a squeeze. She couldn't see what was going on, but she could hear. Oh dear, there's another one down, she thought, as she heard one of the men tripped up by beauty. And there goes another. I shall die of laughing. Good old beauty. He's never allowed to behave like this in the usual way. He must be enjoying himself. At last, the men could bear it no more. Come up to that tower room, yelled Pottersham. I'm not going back through those dark passages with snakes after me. There must be dozens of them here. We'll be bitten soon. Joe laughed out loud. Dozens of them. Well, probably Beauty did seem like a dozen snakes to the bewildered men falling over one another in the dark. But Beauty would not bite. He was not poisonous. Somehow, the men got up into the tower room and left the snake behind. Beauty was tired of the game now and went to Joe when the girl called to him. She draped him round her neck and listened. The door up in the tower room had slammed. Joe slipped up the steps, felt for the door bolt in the darkness, and neatly and quietly pulled it across. Now, unless the men liked to risk going down the peg rope, which she guessed Buffalo had put up against the wall to rescue the others, they were nicely trapped. And if they did go down the rope, they would be sure to find a few people waiting for them at the bottom. Come on, Beauty, let's go said Joe, and went down the steps, wishing she had a torch. She remembered the little lantern that had been left in the hidden room and felt more cheerful. She would be able to take that with her down all those dark passages. Good. Beauty slithered in front of her. He knew the way, all right. 
they came to the little room, and Joe thankfully picked up the lantern. She looked down at the big python, and he stared up at her with gleaming, unwinking eyes. His long body coiled and uncoiled, shining brown and polished in the light. I wouldn't mind you for a pet if you were a bit smaller, Joe told him. I don't know why people don't like snakes. Oh, beauty, it makes me laugh to think of the way you treated those men. She chuckled as she went along the secret ways, holding the lantern high, except when she came to the last passage of all and had to walk bent double. Beauty waited for her when she came to the hole in the wall. He had heard noises outside. Joe climbed out first and was immensely surprised to find herself pounced on and held. She wriggled and shouted and struggled and finally bit the hand that was holding her. Then a torch was shone on her and a shout went up. It's Joe! Joe, where have you been? And look here, if you bite like that, I'll scrag you. Buffalo, I'm sorry, but what did you want to go and pounce on me for? cried Joe. The moon suddenly came out and lit up the scene. She saw Julian and the rest there, coming up eagerly. Joe, are you all right? said her uncle. We were worried about you. Where have you been? Joe took no notice. She ran up to Dick and the others. You escaped, she cried. Did you all get safely down the peg rope? There's no time to tell about that now, said Buffalo, watching the hole in the wall. What about those fellows? We're waiting for them here. Did you hear anything of them, Joe? Oh, yes. I followed them. Oh, Buffalo, it was so funny, said Joe, and began to laugh. Buffalo shook her, but she couldn't stop. And then, who should come gliding out through the hole but Beauty? Mr. Slither saw him at once and gave a yell. Beauty! Joe, did you take him with you? You wicked girl! Come here, my beauty! The snake glided to him and wound himself lovingly round him. I'm not wicked, said Joe indignantly. Beauty wanted to come with me, and he did. And, oh, he got mixed up with all those men, and... She went off into peals of laughter again. Dick grinned in sympathy. Cho was very funny when she couldn't stop laughing. Alfredo shook her roughly and made her stop. Tell us what you know about those men, he commanded. Are they coming out this way? Where are they? Oh, oh, the men, said Joe wiping her eyes and trying to stop laughing. They're all right. Beauty chased them back to the tower room, and I bolted them in. They're still there, I expect, unless they dare to get down the peg rope, which I bet they won't. Buffalo gave a short laugh. <laughs> you did well, Joe, he said. You and Beauty. He gave a sharp order to Alfredo and the rubber man, who went back over the wall and into the courtyard to watch if the men slid down the peg rope. I think it would be a good idea to get the police now, said Terry Kane, beginning to feel that he must be in some kind of extraordinary dream, with peg ropes and whips and knives and snakes turning up in such a peculiar manner. 
That fellow Pottersham is dangerous. He's a traitor and must be caught before he gives away all that he knows about the work he and I have been doing. Right, said Buffalo. We've got another fellow locked up too, in an empty caravan. But didn't he escape then? said Joe, surprised. I thought that man Pottersham, who's up in the tower room now, was the one we locked up. The one we locked up is still locked up, said Buffalo grimly. But who is he then? said Terry Kane, bewildered. We'll soon find out, said Buffalo. Come on, let's get going now. It's very late. You kids must be dying of hunger. Somebody ought to go to the police, and I want to get back to camp. Alfredo and the rubber man will keep guard on the peg rope, said Mr Slither, still fondling beauty. There is no need to stay here any longer. So down the hill they went, talking nineteen to the dozen. Terry Kane went off to the police station and to telephone what he vaguely called the high-up authorities. The five children began to think hungrily of something to eat and drink. Timmy ran to the stream as soon as they reached the field and began to lap thirstily. Let's just find out if you know the fellow we've got locked up in this caravan, said Buffalo when they got to the camp. He seems the only unexplained bit so far. He unlocked the caravan and called loudly. Come on out. We want to know who you are. He held up a lamp and the man inside came slowly to the door. There was a shout of amazement from all the children. Uncle Quentin! cried Julian, Dick and Anne. Father! shouted George. What are you doing here? Chapter 23 Having a Wonderful Time There was a minute or two of silence. Everyone was most astonished. To think that George's father had been locked up like that. It had been Joe's mistake, of course. She had been so sure he was Mr. Pottersham. Julian, said Uncle Quentin, very much on his dignity and also very angry. I must ask you to go and get the police here. I was set on and locked up in this caravan for no reason at all. Buffalo began to look most disturbed. He turned on Joe. Why didn't you tell us he was George's father, he said. I didn't know it was, said Joe. I've never seen him, and anyhow, I thought... It doesn't matter what you thought, said Uncle Quentin, looking at the dirty little girl in disgust. I insist on the police being fetched. Uncle Quentin, I'm sure it's all been a mistake, said Julian. And anyway, Mr Terry Kane has gone to the police himself. His uncle stared at him as if he couldn't believe his ears. Terry Kane? Where is he? What has happened? Is he found? Yes, it's rather a long story, said Julian. It all began when we saw that face at the window. I told Aunt Fanny all about that, Uncle, and she said she would tell you when you got back from London. Well, it was Mr Terry Kane at the window. 
I thought so. I told your Aunt Fanny I had a feeling it was, said his uncle. That's why I came as soon as ever I could. But you were none of you here. What happened to you? Well, that's part of the story, Uncle, said Julian patiently. But I say, do you mind if we have something to eat? We're practically dead from starvation. Haven't had anything since yesterday. That ended the interview for the time being. Mrs. Alfredo bustled about, and soon there was a perfectly glorious meal set in front of the five half-starved children. They sat round a campfire and ate and ate and ate. Mrs. Alfredo practically emptied her big pot for them. Timmy was surrounded by plates of scraps and big bones brought by every member of the camp. Almost every minute someone loomed up out of the darkness with a plate of something or other, either for the hungry children or for Timmy. At last they really could eat no more, and Julian began to tell their extraordinary story. Dick took it up, and George added quite a few bits. Joe interrupted continually, and even Timmy put in a few barks. Only Anne said nothing. She was leaning against her uncle, fast asleep. I never heard such a tale in my life, said Uncle Quentin continually. Never! Fancy that fellow Pottersham going off with Terry Kane like that. I knew Terry Kane was all right. He wouldn't let his country down. Now, Pottersham, I never did like. Well, go on. The fair folk were as enthralled as Uncle Quentin with the tale. They came closer and closer as the story of the secret passages, the hidden room, the stone stairways and the rest was unfolded. They got very excited when they learnt how Buffalo had appeared in the tower room and had flicked the gun out of Pottersham's hand. Uncle Quentin threw back his head and roared when he heard that bit. What a shock for that fellow! he said. I'd like to have seen his face. Well, well, I never heard such a tale in my life. And then it was Joe's turn to tell how she had followed the four men into the secret passages and had set Beauty, the python, onto the men. She began to laugh again as she told her tale, and soon all the fair folk were laughing in sympathy, rocking to and fro, with tears streaming down their faces. Only Uncle Quentin looked rather solemn at this point. He remembered how he had felt when, because of his shouting, the fair folk had sent the python into his caravan and almost frightened him out of his life. Mr Slither, please do get beauty, begged Joe. He ought to listen to his part of the story. He was wonderful. He enjoyed it all, too. I'm sure he would have laughed, if only snakes could laugh. Poor Uncle Quentin didn't like to object when the snake man fetched his beloved python. In fact, he fetched both of them, and they had never had such a fuss made of them before. They were patted and rubbed and pulled about in a way they both seemed to enjoy hugely. Let me hold beauty, Mr Slither, said Joe at last, and she draped him round her neck like a long, shiny scarf. Uncle Quentin looked as if he was going to be sick. 
he would certainly have got up and gone away if it hadn't been that his favourite niece Anne was fast asleep against his shoulder. What extraordinary people George seems to be friends with, he thought. I suppose they are all right, but really, what with whips and knives and snakes, I must say I find this all very peculiar. Somebody's coming up the field, said Joe suddenly. It's... Yes, it's Mr. Terry Kane, and he's got three policemen with him. Immediately, almost all the fair folk melted away into the darkness. They knew quite well why the police had come. Not for them, but because of Mr. Pottersham and his unpleasant friends. But all the same, they wanted nothing to do with the three burly policemen walking up the hill with Terry Kane. Uncle Quentin leapt to his feet as soon as he saw Terry Kane. He ran to meet him joyfully and pumped his arm up and down, up and down, shaking his hands so vigorously that Terry Kane felt quite exhausted. My dear fellow, said Uncle Quentin, I'm so glad you're safe. I told everyone you weren't a traitor and never could be. Everyone. I went up to London and told them. I'm glad you're all right. Well, it's thanks to these children, said Terry Kane, who looked very tired. I expect you've heard the peculiar and most extraordinary tale of the face at the window. Yes, it's all so extraordinary that I shouldn't believe it if I'd read it in a book, said Uncle Quentin. And yet it all happened. My dear fellow, you must be very tired. I am, said Terry Kane. But I'm not going to lie down and sleep until those other fellows are safely under lock and key, Pottersham and his fine friends. Do you mind if I leave you for a bit and go off to the castle again? We simply must catch those fellows. I came to ask if one of the children could go with us, because I hear we have to creep through all kinds of passages and galleries and up spiral stairways and goodness knows what. Didn't you go that way when Pottersham first took you there and hid you in that room? asked Dick, surprised. Yes, I must have gone that way, said Mr. Terry Kane. But I was blindfolded and half doped with something they had made me drink. I've no idea of the way. Of course, Pottersham knew every inch. He's written books about all these old castles, you know. Nobody knows more about them and their secrets than he does. He certainly put his knowledge to good use this week. I'll go with you, said Joe. I've been up and down those passages four times now. I know them by heart. The others have only been once. Yes, you go, said Buffalo. Take Timmy, said George, most generously, for usually she would never let Timmy go with Joe. Or take a snake, suggested Dick with a grin. I won't take anything said Joe. I'll be all right with three big policemen. So long as they're not after me, I like them. She didn't really, but she couldn't help boasting a little. She set off with Terry Kane and the three policemen, strutting a little and feeling quite a heroine. The others all went their caravans, tired out. Uncle Quentin sat by the campfire, waiting for the arrival of Pottersham and his three friends. Good night, said Julian to the girls. 
I'd like to wait till the crowd come back, complete with the rubber man and Alfredo. But I shall fall asleep standing on my feet in a minute. I say, wasn't that a smashing supper? Super, said the others. Well, see you tomorrow. They all slept very late the next day. Joe was back long before they awoke, very anxious to tell them how they had captured Pottersham and the others, and how they had been marched off to the police station, with her following all the way. But Mrs Alfredo would not let her wake the four children up. However, they did awake at last, and got up eagerly, remembering all the exciting moments of the day before. Soon they were jumping down the steps of the two caravans, eager to hear the latest news. Hello, father, shouted George, seeing him not far off. Hello, Uncle Quentin. Hello, Joe, called the others, and soon heard the latest bits of information from Joe, who was very proud of being in at the finish. But they didn't put up any fight at all, she said, rather disappointed. I think beauty scared all the fight out of them last night. They just gave in without a word. Now, you children, called Mrs. Alfredo, I have kept a little breakfast for you. You like to come? They did like to come. Joe went too, though she had already had one breakfast. Uncle Quentin went to sit down with them. He gazed around, amazed at all the goings-on of the camp. Buffalo was doing some remarkable rope spinning and whip cracking. The rubber man was wriggling in and out of the wheel spokes of his caravan without stopping. Mr. Slither was polishing his snakes. Dacker was step dancing on a board. Click, click, clickety click. Alfredo came up with his button hook like torches and his metal bowl. I give you a treat, he announced to Uncle Quentin. You would like to see me fire eat? Uncle Quentin stared at him, as if he thought he had gone raving mad. He's a fire-eater, Uncle, explained Dick. Oh, uh, no, thank you, my good man. I would rather not see you eat fire, said Uncle Quentin, politely but very firmly. Alfredo was most disappointed. He had meant to give this man a real treat to make up for locking him into the caravan. He went away sadly, and Mrs. Alfredo screamed after him. You foolish man! Who wants to see you fire it? You have no brains. You are a big, silly, bad man. You keep away with your fire eating. She disappeared into her caravan, and Uncle Quentin looked after her, astonished at her sudden outburst. This is really a very extraordinary place, he said. And most extraordinary people. I'm going back home today, George. Wouldn't you all like to come with me? I don't really feel it's the right thing for you to get mixed up in so many funny doings. Oh, no, father, said George in horror. Go home when we've only just settled in? Of course not. None of us wants to leave, do we, Julian? She said, looking round beseechingly at him. Julian answered at once. George is right, Uncle. We're just beginning to enjoy ourselves here. I think we're all agreed on that. We are, said everyone. 
and Timmy thumped his tail hard and gave a very loud woof. Very well, said Uncle Quentin, getting up. I must go, I suppose. I'll catch the bus down to the station. Come down with me. They went to see him off on the bus. It came up well on time, and he got in. Goodbye, he said. What message shall I give your mother, George? She'll expect to hear something from the five of you. Well, shouted everyone as the bus rumbled off. Well, just tell her the five are having a wonderful time. Goodbye, Uncle Quentin. Goodbye.